This episode was made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. For more information, please visit patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 175. Hey there, everyone. Welcome to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm Chris Lester, scientist by day, writer by night, and podcaster on the weekends. You can find more of my work at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. This is the show where I share my fresh new fiction with you and keep you up to date on my life and my writing. So let's get started with this week's story. Today I'm bringing you Chapter 33 of my Metamore City novel, The Lost and the Least. If you're new to the show, go back to Episode 143 to hear this story from the beginning. The following recap will contain spoilers. Kate and the Special Investigations Division have apprehended their first suspect in the string of murder kidnappings plaguing the city. Nevinard Lido is back at Justice Tower, safely in police custody. His five co-conspirators, however, chose death over imprisonment. In the basement of Nevin's house, the police found the remains of an occultation spell, which erased the arcane signature of everything in the vicinity. The five cultists supercharged the spell by sacrificing their own lives, eliminating any hope of finding out what they were doing or who else might have been killed there. Nevin's version of events is the only one the police will get. Kate has also been dealing with problems of a more personal nature. Two nights ago, she had a dream where a mysterious voice was calling her name. She followed the voice down a staircase made of bones and into the jail cells at the Precinct 9 station house. The voice came to her from behind a locked door in solitary confinement and tried to make Kate open the door. Before she could do so, she was awakened by another voice a theriomorph skunk man who calls himself Murakir. She soon encountered Murakir in the flesh, where he explained that he had been sucked into her dream by accident. The voice in the prison cell is one that he has been hearing off and on for most of his life, and while he's not sure what it is, he is firmly convinced it needs to stay locked up. Kate later encountered Murray a second time, in the lobby of Justice Tower. He promised to tell her more, but he was afraid that they were being watched by unseen enemies and insisted that she needed to be patient. Kate, frustrated and annoyed by this apparent crazy person who's been stalking her, walked away from Murray, telling him that patience was never her strong suit. Meanwhile, Jared has been kidnapped by a sinister cult called the Brotherhood of the Sepulchre. This is the group that is behind the murder kidnappings, though Kate and the police don't know that. A cultist codenamed Reclutius, who was actually Nevinard Leto, became convinced that Jared is the prophesied savior that the cult has been waiting for. He passed on the word about Jared to his superiors, then went to give himself up to police, intending to throw the investigators off of the cult's trail. Jared was then interviewed by one of these superiors, a haughty and sharp-tongued woman codenamed Adrastia. After confirming that Jared has the blood to at least potentially be their savior, Adrastia explained the cult's history and goals. 
The Brotherhood believes that the Earth's true creator god has been imprisoned, locked away in another plane by the gods of the Pantheon when the world was young. They think this is the reason why the world is filled with pain and suffering. The usurpers don't understand how things were supposed to work, and without the Creator's wisdom, things have gradually spiraled into chaos. The Brotherhood believes that the shackled God has revealed himself to them in their dreams, giving them instructions for how to free him. Jared is one potential candidate to become the Vessel, a mortal being who will be filled with a measure of the shackled God's power. Once the vessel has been found, he or she will lead the Brotherhood in the work needed to free the god completely, so he can repair his broken creation and make it whole again. Privately, Jared thinks that the Brotherhood has cobbled together their theology from three or four other religions, and that the whole idea of hoping for a perfect world is sort of sad and pathetic. On the other hand, as long as the Brotherhood thinks Jared might be this vessel, they aren't going to kill him. As a matter of fact, Adrastia admits that if Jared passes all of the tests and proves himself to be the vessel, the Brotherhood will be sworn to obey him, even if that means letting him go. As crazy as that is, Jared thinks it might be his only chance of getting out of this situation alive. He tells Adrastia to give him the second test. They will put Jared into a trance and see if the shackled god reveals himself to him. The Lost and the Least, a novel of Metamore City, written and read by Chris Lester. Chapter 33 Kate was looking for something. She couldn't remember what it was, but she knew it was important. Someone was counting on her. She walked down empty city streets, the towers of Metamore rising around her. Far overhead, the sky was dark with clouds, purple-black and growling with thunder. There were no skimmers, no pedestrians, no subway trains rumbling through tunnels beneath her feet. She had never seen the city so empty, so quiet. Where did all the people go? she wondered. She looked into the windows of the buildings she passed. It was strange, she thought, that they did not have bars on them. What part of the street is this? It seemed vaguely familiar, but she couldn't place it. She stepped closer to a storefront window. The sign over the entrance said, Locksmith. The display case held a large chest made of wood and steel, like an old-fashioned treasure chest. Heavy chains were wrapped around the body of the chest on all sides, all held together by an enormous lock that seemed bolted to the front of the chest. The lock looked like it was plated in gold, though it might have been brass. The housing for the lock was molded into the shape of a skull, with the keyhole in the middle of the forehead. In front of the chest, a variety of keys had been laid out on a piece of black velvet. They were of all different shapes and sizes, from modern apartment keys to antique lever-lock designs. I guess they didn't fit. Kate turned and looked to her left. Dr. Jared Tamlin stood there, gazing pensively at the display case. Why's that? 
Kate asked. Tamlin shrugged. If they had, the chest would be open, wouldn't it? This made sense to Kate, but she vaguely remembered that she was still mad at Tamlin, so she didn't say so. Should we go in? She felt something tugging at her, wordlessly urging her to open the chest. But something else made her hesitate. A voice drifted up from out of her memories. Something that needs to stay locked up. Tamlin took a deep breath and squared his shoulders. I think I have to go in, he said. He turned the doorknob, and it opened easily. He stepped into the darkness of the shop. Kate summoned a ball of light with a quick enchantment, then followed Tamlin inside. She still felt that hesitation, that sense of push-pull. Now that Tamlin had opened the door, though, the urge to follow him was too strong to resist. They climbed into the window display, and Tamlin began examining the chest. He tested the chains, but there was no slack in them. He got down on one knee to examine the keyhole. Kate, meanwhile, was looking more closely at the keys. They all seemed to be damaged in some way. Bent shafts, worn-down teeth, metal fatigue, and rusted spots. Kate picked up one of the lovelier keys, a golden one of an unfamiliar design. She turned it over in her hands, and then she saw that it was not a key at all, but a tiny person, a woman her naked body covered in bruises and small cuts. The body was cold in Kate's hand and did not move. Kate examined it closely, and she recognized the face from one of the red files Morgan had given her. Gently, Kate set the body down on the velvet. You were right, she said to Tamlin, grudgingly. They didn't fit. Tamlin looked over at the body. Confusion gave way to mingled sadness and frustration. The world's not fair, he muttered, seemingly to himself. I don't know why people keep expecting it to be. He picked up one of the other keys and tried to shove it into the lock, but it got stuck halfway in and wouldn't turn. He pulled it out and dropped it on the ground, sighing. Kate looked down and saw it had turned into a crumpled body the arms and legs bent at strange angles. Kate remembered something else she'd heard recently. You are the key, she said. Tamlin gave her a quizzical look. I'm a key now? I thought I was a vessel. Now it was Kate's turn to look confused. The vessel for what? Tamlin said nothing for several seconds, just stared at her. Miss Katane, he said at last. Are you dreaming? Kate didn't understand the question at first. Then she looked down at the row of keys, and the one that had changed into a dead woman in her hands. You know, I think maybe I am. Tamlin sat down on the floor and leaned back against the chest. He looked thunderstruck. We're in the same dream somehow, he said, half to himself. Then he looked back up at Kate, and suddenly she could see fear in his eyes, mixed with desperate hope. Miss Katane, listen carefully. I've been kidnapped by some kind of cult. They think I might be some kind of chosen one, and if I don't prove it to them, they're going to kill me. Kate blinked. What? 
Her mind felt slow and sluggish. Thinking felt like trying to wade through a swamp. Lightning split the sky somewhere close, deafening Kate with the thunderclap and throwing harsh shadows across the inside of the shop. On its heels came another bolt, and then another. Tamlin's look of desperation increased, and he began talking faster. I don't know where I am, but I'm underground, he said, almost yelling now to be heard over the thunder. I can hear the river somewhere close. Please, tell Special Investigations, have them start looking for me. Anything else Tamlin might have said was cut off when the lightning arced through the open door and struck the back of his head. Kate was blinded and deafened by the blast, as though she had been hit by a flashbang grenade. A wave of force threw her back against the wall, and she fell to the ground, stunned. When the vertigo subsided and the spots faded from her vision, Kate sat up and looked around. Tamlin was gone. The keys had been scattered across the floor. The chest, though, was unharmed. The skull-shaped lock drew her gaze and held it there, tempting her with whatever secrets lay within. Beneath the ringing in her ears, she could hear a voice whispering to her from inside the chest. Catherine, I am waiting for you. You are the key. You can free me. Tentatively, Kate reached out toward the lock. She extended her index finger watched it change shape, elongating and sprouting tiny metal teeth. The ringing in her ears grew louder. Her heart pounded in her chest. She inserted her finger key into the lock, and it slid smoothly into place. Come to me, Catherine, the voice urged. But the ringing was so loud now she could barely hear it. Kate started to turn her finger in the lock then abruptly realized that it wasn't her ears that were ringing. It was her phone. Kate opened her eyes. She was lying sprawled at an angle on her bed, her sheets a tangled mess around her feet. Her burner phone, the one she used for her private investigator business, lay a few centimeters from her ear. It was still ringing. Awkwardly, Kate fumbled for the phone. She was disoriented from being woken in the middle of her dream, and her fingers weren't working right. She knocked the phone onto the floor before she finally recovered enough motor coordination to answer it. Hello? It came out as a croak. Her tongue felt fuzzy, and her head was pounding. Finally, Callie Linder said. Turn on the news, kitty cat. Right fucking now. Kate looked at her clock. It was barely after five in the morning, and after the late night she'd had, that was too damned early. What news? she asked. What channel? Any of them, Callie snapped. Come on, cat, spool up your turbines. All right, damn it, I'm going. She clambered out of bed, then padded across the apartment to the living room where her television sat. She pushed a few empty carryout bags aside so they wouldn't block the screen retrieved the remote from where she'd left it under the coffee table, and pressed the power button. She switched over from her video streaming service to the local broadcast networks. Callie had been exaggerating slightly. The news in question wasn't actually playing on every channel. It was, however, playing on at least five of them. 
Kate had flipped past the press conference footage four times before she woke up enough to realize that she knew the person behind the podium. It was Shaw. We do not have that information at this time, she said, apparently answering a question from one of the reporters. The suspect is cooperating with investigators, and we will continue to interview him to request more details on how and when the victims were chosen. Yes? Another reporter stood up to speak. Do you have any idea what this death magic cult was hoping to accomplish? If they were casting a spell, what did they want it to do? The suspect said that all of their actions were intended to target a specific individual, Shaw said. The suspect believes that their intended victim is a major figure in organized crime within Metamore City. Several reporters shouted questions at once. Kate thought she heard at least one of them say Ardvalos. Shaw held up a hand for silence. To Kate's amazement, she got it. Out of respect for the intended victim's privacy, as well as their public reputation, I will not be naming them here. Apart from the legal and ethical concerns, it would be foolish to repeat the conspiratorial beliefs of what is obviously a deeply disturbed individual. Spreading those sorts of rumors could well inspire copycat crimes, and we have enough to deal with as it is. Kate muted the television and put the phone back to her ear. Hey, I'm back. What did I miss before you called? This Captain Shaw is saying they found the bastards who did the kidnappings, Callie growled. Six people. Six people, and five of them are dead, so this one jackass is the only one left to talk. Kate nodded absently as she watched Shaw continue calmly fielding questions from the crowd of reporters. She tried to look at the situation from the perspective of the Kittredge persona. How would this look to a street-level private eye? What would she care about? What about the people they took? Kate said. Have they all been accounted for, or are some of them still missing? Kate, come on, Callie said. The problem is bigger than that. Think about it. Think about what they're saying. Six people did all those kidnappings, all those murders, all over the city? What about all the shit Silas uncovered? The money, the dead drops, all of it. Or those victims who were tortured, the ones who looked like they'd been held for weeks. Hells, what about the hit on that van full of proxies? You think six assholes in robes could stop a syndicate escort team? Not fucking likely. Kate frowned. Well, the stuff Silas found looks like it was something else. I've got a contact now in this underground organization that's targeting Malcolm, but they aren't going after civilians to do it. Somebody wanted Silas gone for what he knew, Callie insisted. And six people couldn't have taken Silas in a fight, either. Not in his own base. Not without leaving bodies on the floor. So you're saying this is a bigger conspiracy, Kate said. Some of these death mages are still out there. Most of them are still out there. Callie said, and they've still got Silas. Only this so-called cooperating suspect says it was just him and his mates. And either this Captain Shaw believes it, and she's an idiot, or she's repeating the story when she knows it can't be true, and she's a liar. Kate bristled to hear Callie talk about her captain that way, but she swallowed the defense that automatically rose in her throat. Kate Katane cared about Captain Shaw's reputation, but Kate Kittredge did not. Think like a private eye. Maybe they want to lull the death mages into a false sense of security, Kate said.
make him think the cops are fooled, that they aren't watching anymore, and then nail him. Could be, Callie said. Could be they also just want to make the problem go away. It's mostly street rats getting taken. Topsiders don't give a shit about that unless it makes them look bad. Kate chewed on her bottom lip. Okay, say you're right, and there's more of these assholes out there. What's your next move? Kelly explained the plan for Will to go to Chisholm University and look for evidence of the Death Mage's activities on campus, particularly at the teaching hospital and the genetics lab. Kate knew all of this, thanks to her conversation with Morgan, but she couldn't tell Callie that without blowing the cover on her Kitridge persona. If you two keep working together, you're going to have to tell her who you are, she told herself. You can't keep your two worlds separate if they keep bumping into each other like this. But that was a problem for another time. Is it going to be safe for Will to start poking into this? Kate asked. He's not a runner, Cal. Not even a street rat. Your mouth to Eli's ear, Callie said sourly. She was silent a moment, then added in a more subdued tone. He wants to help, though. And he's a bookworm, so doing research at a university is probably the best thing he can do. And I can't keep shutting him out if I want him to stay in my world, you know? Kate was stunned. It was an honest admission of vulnerability, the kind that Callie had never allowed herself before. You love him, she said, and as soon as she'd said it, she was sure it was true. You really love him. Callie chuckled. She sounded embarrassed. Yeah, well, we can't all have an incubus for a fuck toy. It was the first time Kate had even thought of John for more than a day. The realization made her feel strangely guilty, though she wasn't sure why. Fair point, she admitted. So is Will going in alone, then? No, Drowling's got this junior cop she's sending along with him, Callie said. I don't know her, though. Corporal Moore? She works in SID, I guess. Kate smiled. He'll be in good hands, then. Moore's young, but she's good police. Glad to hear it. Callie paused again, and Kate waited. When she spoke again, there was something brittle in her voice, and Kate could imagine her holding herself very straight, her chin high, desperate to avoid showing weakness. Kate, I'm scared they're going to bury this one. Silas got on the scent of something major, and now the Blues are going to close the books and leave him rotting in a hole somewhere. If you help me get him back, I'll owe you a big favor. It was the closest Callie had ever come to begging for help. It was probably the closest she could come, given her temperament and the hardness her job had drilled into her. This man is the nearest thing you've ever had to a father. Kate thought. I'll do everything I can to find him, Cal. Let me know if you learn anything else. Cert, Callie said. Good hunting, kitty cat. You too, calendar girl. Kate rang off, then turned her attention back to the television. The press conference had ended, and the newscasters were recapping the story of last night's raid and Nevenard Lido's capture. The young man's mugshot was shown repeatedly along with footage of him being led through Justice Tower in handcuffs. It all felt very slick and polished, 
as if Captain Shaw had delivered the entire story, gift-wrapped in time for the early morning news programs. She must have been up all night putting this together, Kate thought. The messaging was clear. Bad guys were up to something, SID hunted them down, and SID stopped them. It was exactly the sort of super-competent police work the division was known for. Here's a problem you didn't know you had. We just fixed it for you. Except this time, Kate wasn't sure it was true. Yes, they'd caught Nevenard Leto, but that occultation spell his co-conspirators had cast left Kate with nothing to go on but the word of one criminal. There was nothing in the news broadcasts about the ritual, of course. It was the sort of detail the police regularly kept out of the press, not least to filter out phony witnesses who might show up later, hoping for a piece of the spotlight. As far as the general public was concerned, Nevin's allies had simply committed suicide rather than go to prison. There was some speculation among the newscasters that Nevin may have killed them all, but for the most part, people seemed to be accepting the official story, at least for now. And the reporters could not get enough of Nevin, it seemed. Kate watched the news for the next hour, and they kept returning to the question of who this man was, where he had come from, and what had driven him onto this mad quest for revenge. Shaw and SID were mentioned only in passing, and absolutely no one questioned the official line that the murders and kidnappings had been stopped. With no information yet on the identities of the victims, the media were consumed with speculation on how a promising young man from a wealthy family had gone so terribly wrong. Kate had been working the street for a long time now. She knew a shell game when she saw one. Shaw had taken the reporter's focus and put it exactly where she wanted it, which meant they wouldn't be watching what SID did next. What that might be, Kate wasn't sure, but she trusted the captain would fill her in when she got to work this afternoon. Kate turned off the TV and went back to bed. She knew she needed to get more sleep. She was keenly aware of her fatigue, in body and mind alike, but the memories of her strange dream troubled her, and she slept fitfully. Each time she woke, the same questions ran through her mind. What did it mean? What was the voice that kept calling to her? And why, in all the hells, was she dreaming of Dr. Jared Tamlin? And that's the end of Chapter 33. Come back next time when we find out what happened to Jared and Will and Lizzie begin their research mission at Chisholm. Mary Oliver said, When it's over, I want to say, All my life I was a bride married to amazement. I was the bridegroom taking the world into my arms. When it's over... I don't want to wonder if I have made my life something particular and real. I don't want to find myself sighing and frightened or full of argument. I don't want to end up simply having visited this world. Ms. Oliver was an amazing, Pulitzer Prize-winning poet who passed away this week at the age of 83. She was also my wife Melanie's favorite poet. 
She leaves behind a legacy of millions who were inspired by the truth and beauty of her work. Check it out if you're not familiar with it. It's very worth your time. Now, let's take a look at what I've been doing with my life lately. Here's your weekly writing report. Over the last two weeks, I wrote 10,557 words in 15.5 hours, averaging 681 words per hour. As of Friday night, I have gone 105 days without breaking my chain. I'm continuing to make great progress on homecoming. Since the start of this year, I've regularly been clocking a thousand words or more on each day of writing. I've already exceeded my word count for all of December, and I still have almost two full weeks left in the month. The story is now in Chapter 17, and the manuscript stands at nearly 48,000 words. Over on the Patreon feed, we have a new patron this month. Say hello to Laws! If you like this show and want to help me keep making it, becoming a patron is the very best way to support me. For $3 a month, you get access to art previews, sneak peeks of upcoming stories, and other cool stuff. Plus, all of my patrons get the monthly bonus art, and a customized RSS feed for my Behind the Episode podcast. This unscripted show gives you exclusive author commentary you can't get anywhere else, and it covers everything from real-world inspirations, to hidden Easter eggs, to in-universe details like Ms. Fallon's secret backstory, or the evolutionary history of elves. That's at patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. Check out the reward levels and make a pledge today. And if you're already a patron, thank you so much for your support. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255-082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook. And my Mastodon handle is at author Chris Lester at wandering.shop. If you like this show, take a minute and leave me a review in Apple Podcasts. It makes a big difference in helping people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fiction, fresh off the writing desk. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2018 and 2019 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.